Now, if you have peeked ahead, and I hope you have, you know that we're talking about some things we always love and relish to talk about. Excommunicating sinners from the church. Contemplating our sin and purging our own souls of sin. You know, those fun things. Those glorious topics we always looked at. These are probably part of your devotionals regularly. But we find them difficult things. And yet they are weighty and meaningful things. And they're actually good things. Uh, So to understand that, I want you to do something this morning. I want you to imagine for a moment this scene. I want you to imagine yourself standing in your front yard and your young child is wandering towards the busy street. So you say to him, hey, don't go out in the street. Now, your child, young, is is old enough and knows enough to not play in the street, but he's picking up speed as if he didn't hear you. And he's running out into the street where you see a speeding car coming along. So instinctively you say, no, you yell, stop! And at the same time, you break to run towards the street. To physically grab him and stop him with whatever force is required to stop the child. Now you have neighbors. And your neighbors are looking on. And they're watching and thinking, hmm, they shouldn't yell at their child loud like that. But you don't care what they think. Because he's your child. And some other neighbors are watching and thinking, hmm, they shouldn't physically grab their child that way. But you don't care. Because what they think doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that some people don't agree with what you said. It doesn't matter that some people don't understand the situation or have enough details to evaluate the situation properly for themselves You do it because it's a matter of life and death, right? Can you imagine that? Because if you can imagine that, then you will be able to understand what Paul is writing to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sometimes people in the church are behaving in a way that puts their souls in jeopardy. And everyone in the church at that moment is to become like an imaginary mom and dad and tell them to stop. Even if people don't like what the church has to say. And everyone in the church is responsible to act in the most dramatic way. Even if people outside the church don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and they criticize you for it. Because it's a matter of eternal life and death. If you can understand that, then you can understand what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you can understand your role in it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll read the chapter, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? 
Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit's present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, Paul is moving on from the problem of division in the church, but not from the cause of that division, which is the Corinthians' arrogance and boasting in men. In chapter 4, he said they were acting as if they had, had all they wanted. They were walking around acting like kings. See, they had accommodated the culture in their behavior and were boasting in men rather than in Christ Jesus. So Paul says that they're arrogant and puffed up with pride. And he asks, shall I come to you with a rod? Meaning the rod of discipline. Obviously, when Paul finished writing that last sentence in chapter 4, he knew what he was going to write as his first sentence in chapter 5. Something that would obviously require the rod of discipline. And what was that? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. This is shocking. Here's what we know. A man in this church who claims to be a brother in Christ is engaging in ongoing sexual relations with his father's wife. Now, since Paul doesn't refer to her as the man's mother, she is probably his stepmother, a subsequent marriage to his father. And Paul is outraged. And he's not making up morality codes as he goes along. According to Scripture, this is incest. This is made plain in Leviticus and Deuteronomy with these laws. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Leviticus 18. A man shall not take his father's wife. Deuteronomy 22. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife. 
Deuteronomy 27. You, you may remember from our study in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 35, Reuben lay with Bilhah, his father Jacob's concubine, and was cut off from Israel. Our tendency when we read something like this is to want more details. We want to know what's really going on here so that we can weigh in on it. Let me do a little sorting of the facts. Tell you whether I agree with the Word of God or not. Perhaps the man's mother had died and his father had married a second wife. Seems likely. Maybe she's much younger than the father, which would be common in that day. Maybe she's the same age as the young man. Maybe she's attractive. Maybe there are other matters, right, of, of wealth or inheritance. I mean, this is a family thing. You see, we want to know if there are circumstances that might mitigate the disgusting nature of this man's sin. Well, are there any contributing causes? Maybe it's not as bad as it sounds. Let's not kid ourselves. Our flesh has a self-interest in mitigating sin. Because that's what we're tempted to do, to rationalize our own sin. But we don't get those details, because it is as bad as it sounds. It is horrible, and it is a grievous sin before the Lord. Do you know who does have the details? The believers in the church in Corinth. They see all the details. So what's their response? They tolerate this incestuous man. This is an egregious and disgusting sin that the whole church knows about. It's public. And they're doing nothing. And Paul says, this is going on and you're arrogant? Listen. That is Paul telling the church to get out of the street. Stop! Get out of the street! Paul's not saying that the church is arrogant because they're celebrating this man's incestuous sexual immorality. He's saying that their arrogance, in their arrogance, they've become dull to this sin. Even incest. How can that be? Well, this is the result of what Paul has been counseling them against all along in this letter. They have accommodated the culture around them that values nobility, wealth, and power. And they boast in men who have those traits. This incestuous man is probably not a bum. He's probably a man of high status which lends status to the reputation of the church and in the community. This incestuous man may be a patron of the church or its members. He's a big giver. And they don't want to risk a significant hit to their budget. Because Paul has shown them these are the things that they value. We just apply them here. You see, cultural accommodation eventually corrupts. Their misplaced boasting as men has come face to face with open and obvious sexual immorality 
And they want status among men more than they want holiness before God. They didn't start out wanting that. But that's where cultural accommodation has gotten them. Wow, that didn't take long. I mean, in Acts chapter 18, Paul preached the gospel in Corinth. He spent 18 months there planting, establishing this church. They've had faithful teachers like Peter and Apollos building on the foundation of the gospel that Paul laid. And just a few years later, cultural accommodation is eroding the very foundation of the church for all the world to see while Corinth looks on. The arrogance of these Christians to adopt worldly standards to live by has not only divided them, but has corrupted them. Even the pagan Roman citizenry, Paul tells us, can bring a legitimate charge of decadence and hypocrisy against the name of the Jesus Christ whom they profess because the church witnesses that this is fine. And you are arrogant? Ought you not mourn? The church should grieve this man's sin. The church should mourn like loss this man's sin. Paul is grieved and, and mourning this man's sin, and he's outraged that the church is not. Why is this so bad? First, because this man's soul is in grave peril. We can't just look on and say, well, I'm there, but by the grace of God, go I. Too bad for him. No, we must mourn. We must mourn his sin as we would mourn a loss or a death. Second, because this man's sin places us in grave peril. Do you see how their arrogance has spread and their boasting has ruined their understanding of sin? How long before your general, run-of-the-mill, ordinary sexual immorality is tolerated among the people of God? No, our grief must lead us to action. Third, because this man's sin has corrupted the church's witness to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We individual believers have to see the church the way Paul has taught us to see the church. We are the church of God, declared holy in Christ and called to live out that holiness together in the Spirit. We are the receivers of God's grace, the receivers of the Spirit's wisdom, the receivers of Christ's righteousness, called to boast in the Lord. We have been made spiritual people. We have been given the mind of Christ, and we are God's holy temple. That's what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. There's a link there. There's a link there in our understanding of the church is God's temple and the need for action to be taken. That's the link. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul instructs the Corinthian congregation to carry out the final stage of church discipline, which is to excommunicate the incestuous man from the church, to put him out. Now, verses 3 to 5 is one sentence in the Greek with no punctuation marks, making it a little, a little difficult to translate. 
And so I've studied five different commentaries that spent pages explaining how they all basically got to this. Since the church failed to pass judgment on the unrepentant sinner, according to Scripture, Paul has. So by this letter, he instructs the congregation to gather and remove this man from their membership in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the short of it. But there are a couple of things still to explain, a few questions still to answer. We know that Paul is absent in body, but uh, that's why he's writing the letter, right? He's in Ephesus, he's writing the letter to Corinth. But what does he mean when he says, present in spirit, small s? Is there anything, I don't know, supernatural going on here? He's somehow projecting something spiritual there? Well, first Paul says, I'm with you in spirit. The same, you, the same way you and I say, I'm with you in spirit. My body is not present, but my conscience is, I'm thinking about you. My heart is, I'm concerned about you and I care about you. We know what that means. That's how Paul's with them in spirit. But also, Paul is acting on behalf, or on their behalf, as Christ's apostle. That's what he is. Paul is acting He's correcting, he's instructing, he's guiding the church with authority from God. This letter is literally the authoritative word of God. So Paul, acting like a father to his spiritual children, which is how he described himself in the previous chapter, even though he's away, he's responsible for them. And he's administering discipline to the church. Assemble the congregation in the power and the name of the Lord Jesus. And if it helps you, because this is tough relational stuff, imagine me there sitting with you in the front row. I'm with you in spirit. And then you deliver this incestuous man to Satan. Whoa. Like, literally? I mean, that sounds harsh. Well, it is harsh, but perhaps not so literal. Let me explain it this way. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ has purchased us with his own blood. God has forgiven our sins because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He has poured out his spirit on the church, so the church is the place where the Lord is present with his people. God's goal from the beginning. The church is the place where God is present with his people. Think back. The garden in Eden was the place where God walked with his people, Adam and Eve. But when they sinned against him, God cast them out of the garden. They cast them out of his presence. Later on, Canaan was the land in which God was present with his people until he disciplined them by casting them out of the land into captivity in Assyria and Babylon. The northern kingdom of Israel never really came back. But many of the people from the southern kingdom of Judah did come back. Flip over to the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that the right action to take against those who do not obey the gospel is to cast them away from the presence of the Lord. You, you, you see where this is going. So excommunication is 
casting the unrepentant sinner out of the church where God is present with his people, which places them in the domain of Satan, in the worldly system, in this present age. That's the, those are, that's the phrase that Paul has been using here in 1 Corinthians. Why? What's the goal of excommunication for this man who's professing to be in Christ but unrepentant of his sins against Christ? Well, Paul is hoping for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. First of all, the destruction of his flesh does not mean his death. <laughs> I'm putting him out there, zap, you know, Satan is going to, that's not what he's saying. Because Paul has already set up two categories for us to think about this in at the end of chapter 2. There's the natural person, who is the person who lives by the flesh. They do not accept, nor do they understand the wisdom of God, remember? This man looks like that. And then there's the spiritual person who lives by the Spirit of God. They have the mind of Christ, and they use it to evaluate all things and live according to the wisdom of God. This man says he's the spiritual man. But he lives like the natural man. And he will not change. He will not repent. Now there is no going back and forth. There is no shifting in these categories. You don't go from natural man to spiritual man, back to natural man, back to spiritual man. That does not happen. We are all born of the flesh. And we all stay that way. Unless and until we are born again by the Spirit of God. And then, if we're born again by the Spirit of God, we remain in Christ forever. Spiritual men and women. So one of two things must be true about this man. Either he is a man of the Spirit who has horribly fallen into unrepentant sin for a time, or he is a man of the flesh whose unrepentant sin simply proves that he never was in the Spirit. It's one or the other. And either way, the church's responsibility towards this man who professed to be their brother is to cast him out of the church of God and away from the presence of Christ so that his conscience would be so provoked that he would repent of his sin and be transformed by the grace of God and be found in Christ on the great day of the Lord's judgment. See, we're not responsible for reading any person's heart except by the actions which proceed from that heart. That's what we're responsible to judge. In this case, the stubborn unrepentance of this man in sexual sin. Whether he repents and returns to Christ by the work of the Spirit through the power of the Word, or whether he repents and turns to Christ for the first time and finds salvation and being born again through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, salvation and restoration to the body of Christ is the goal for this unrepentant sinner. Whether he comes back to Christ or whether he comes to Christ for the first time, this is the path to take for this man who claims to be in Christ and in the church, but is acting like he does not. You see, the, the power of Christ in the local church 
is a foretaste of life with Christ in the age to come. In the church, you are experiencing this morning a foretaste of heaven. Even if you're an unrepentant sinner here this morning, you're experiencing a foretaste of heaven. Life is better with Christ. And Christ is found walking among his people. What I love about this chapter is the verses that we're about to read again, verses 6 to 8. In between the very difficult excommunication of this sexually immoral man and Paul's charge to the church to always be vigilant in holiness, right in between them is this section of pure gospel, pure encouragement. Look at these powerful words to the church and this beautiful picture of our Savior. It's all at the glorious center of this passage. Beginning in verse 6. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why is their boasting not good? Why is their boasting not good? Because they were not boasting in Christ from whom they'd received everything. And that's got to be plain to us now. They started with boasting in men and status, which caused division. And then being self-deceived that division was not a problem, but actually kind of puffed them up and made them feel good, they grew puffed up in themselves. Till, in their arrogance, they had become insensitive to the most blatant of sins, which they chose to ignore in order to preserve their spiritual pride. They brought a little bit of cultural accommodation into the church, and it's spreading in the form of spiritual corruption. Paul has dealt with the incestuous man because the church wouldn't, but his far greater concern is the whole church. Don't you see what's happened? Don't you see that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? <clears throat> so Paul's illustration, uh, it's, a little like, it's a little like yeast and bread, but really, yeast wasn't really available at that place in time. And so they would save a small lump of the already leavened dough. that's It's fermented, and the process has already taken place in that. And when they made a new big lump of dough, unleavened, they would put a little piece of that leaven into it, and it would spread throughout the whole lump, causing the whole, whole loaf of bread to rise. You get the picture. The small bit of leaven was the sin of the incestuous man in the church. But the church is to be a big lump of unleaven. Unleaven. Purity. Holiness. So they had to cleanse out the old leaven in order to stop sexual sin from spreading and corrupting the whole church. That would be terrible. In verse 7, Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be the new lump, as you really are unleavened. And he, he's already told us this, but in different words. We are the church of God, he said in chapter 1. We are the new lump, which is unleavened, because Christ 
has sanctified us. Also from chapter 1. He has removed the leaven of our sin. This is true of every church everywhere who has called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, be that new lump. Be holy as God has made you holy in Christ. You see, there's work to be done to not sin. I don't know if you've noticed that about your Christian life. I've noticed it about mine, and you've probably noticed it about mine. There's work to be done to be holy. We have to be vigilant to cleanse out the old lump. It doesn't happen by chance. Paul isn't just making this stuff up either. He's taking this reality from the Exodus. He's he's going back to Scripture and preaching, and he's applying it through the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover to make this gospel point. You remember back in Exodus chapter 12, Moses tells the Israelites, Moses tells the Israelites to slaughter an unblemished lamb and to apply its blood to the lentil, the doorpost of their house, and when the death angel comes over in the tenth plague to take all of the firstborn in Egypt, he would pass over the houses covered with the blood of the lamb. Meanwhile, inside those houses, the Israelites were to cleanse out all of the leaven from their houses and make only unleavened bread to eat. It wasn't enough to not use the leaven. They had to throw the leaven out of the house. Cleanse your house of the leaven. Throw it all out. You know the typology here. The church is already unleavened. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. His blood has been applied. Jesus is the lamb of God whose blood atones for all who believe in him. And because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, it follows then that we should celebrate the festivals of the Passover and unleavened bread. How? Not with the old leaven, living in the old sins, of malice and evil, we should celebrate, we should live by by living as unleavened. We should should relish our unleavenedness. New lives lived in sincerity and truth. You see, under the new covenant, Jesus fulfills the Passover and God's people fulfill the feast of unleavened bread by living in a new holy way. Be the new lump. All right, we need t-shirts, right? Oh, that must be a Christian, because they claim to be a new lump. Paul is authorizing a sign change. Sign out front of the building is now going to read, New Lump Baptist Church. That'll bring them in, right? I don't want to go there. They're a bunch of lumps. Oh, but they're new lumps. To cast sin out of the congregation means first to cast sin out of your own heart. We have to take sin seriously. Even a tiny bit of sin left unaddressed can destroy you. Beginning with arrogance. Mustn't you be arrogant? To ignore the holiness of God and the admonitions of his apostle to you? Just like the church in Corinth. To cast out sin is to repent of sin 
Don't be complacent about sin. We must judge ourselves in the light of Jesus' righteousness, not the world's standard, right? We can't just say, well, I'm, I'm better than him. I'm a little further ahead than her. I guess relatively, I'm a very spiritual person. No. Because the standard that we have been made is the righteousness of Christ. And so now the standard that we seek to attain is the righteousness of Christ. By the indwelling Holy Spirit and the true Word of God. You see, the power of the cross is the power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Think of it that way. Because Jesus, our Passover land, has already been sacrificed. The blood has already been painted on our hearts so that our sins are atoned for. Behold him there, we sing. The risen lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. That's how we are the church of God. That's how we are the temple of God. That's how we are positionally sanctified in Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit because of Him. That's why we have been called then to be saints together, repenting of sin, not boasting in our strength, boasting in our weakness, and boasting in Christ. Yes, we are responsible to live our individual lives in pursuit of Christ's likeness. And, see, this is the part that just kind of falls, falls kind of lame on us. We're to do so as Christ's church. Is Paul addressing the sinful man? Yeah, why? For the sake of the church. Christ looks down upon his body, his bride, the people of God, the church. This is the wisdom of God. That he is building us into his temple. That he has gathered us as citizens of his kingdom, made gloriously different from the people who are yet outside of his kingdom in the world. We behold the Lamb and live unleavened lives. That's how we boast in Christ. That's how we boast in Christ. Let's pick up with Paul in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth before this letter. We talked about that back in the introduction. They were already having trouble cleansing 
out the leaven of sexual sin, weren't they? Some misunderstood Paul's instructions, whether innocently or intentionally. I'm sorry, that, thought, that thought's just been running around in my head. Maybe intentionally? Do you think that this, this noble, rich, wealthy guy, this incestuous man, was of the group of people who said, I follow Paul? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he was one of the other groups. We don't have to listen to Paul. We don't have to listen to what he says. We don't have to do those things, don't you think? See the division? They're already having trouble with this. And they misunderstood, either innocently or intentionally. But Paul admits that if he had meant that they were not to associate at all with any sexually immoral people, they would have to leave the planet. That's what he's saying. Because the world's filled with sexually immoral people. Because Corinth was full of sexually immoral people. We do not sit in judgment of the whole world, Paul says. That may be a weight off your shoulders this morning. You have not been made the judge of all the world. Paul is clear in verse 13 that God will judge those outside of the church. God will judge the world. It is important for us to understand sin and what's happening in the world around us because this is the age in which we live as witnesses for Christ. We're not allowed to just shut down and barricade ourselves in and not pay any attention whatsoever, but we waste time bashing the sinful world for being sinful. It's just kind of a hobby horse we sometimes get on and ride. Why would we do that? Makes us feel better. You know what it does? It risks making us arrogant. By judging the sins of unbelievers and ignoring the sins of believers, particularly our own sins. Believers are to judge the unrepentant in the church. What Paul meant was people inside the church, brothers like this incestuous man who professed Christ, the Passover lamb, but lived leavened lives. Not a member of the church who commits a sin and is grieved and repents. Not them. Not believers in their progressive sanctification, which we all are. We remember Jesus teaching in Matthew 7, hey, before you go around grabbing specks out of your brother's eye, Check the log in your own eye. Deal with that first. Then be of kind, humble help to your brother. Sure. Sure, we get that. But a member of the church whose life is characterized by sexual immorality and remains unrepentant, that's what Paul's talking about in these terms. Jesus outlined the process of disciplining disciples in the church in Matthew 18. And when excommunication becomes necessary, Jesus says... Treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. That's what Paul's saying when he says, you're not even to eat with such a one. In these cases of blatant, public, unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin, everyone in the church is charged to withhold fellowship from the unrepentant sinner. This is after the church has given great attention to him and focused, focused great amounts of energy on him. But he has rejected it all. To not eat with them includes barring them from the Lord's Supper. But sharing a meal with them implies, then as it does now, affirmation of their claim to be in Christ while living outside of Christ, and that is not helpful to them, and that is not loving to them. It's counterproductive. 
We don't have a case of church discipline. Plays God before us. So this may sound more like theory. And you can kind of choose to weigh in and agree or disagree with it. But it's not. Don't be arrogant. Church discipline is Jesus' plan for his church. Would you claim to have wisdom beyond God's wisdom? If a case like this were to come about, don't let your misguided sympathy become a place of affirmation for sinners whose souls are in peril. You would not be helping that person. You would not be loving that person. Your desire to be more patient, perhaps, than the rest of those people in the church. To show more compassion, perhaps, than the rest of those people in the church may actually throw a monkey wrench into the works that God has laid out for that very person's restoration. You would fail. You would be across purposes from God. I mean, you wouldn't fail to discipline your own child because they considered it harsh, would you? You wouldn't fail to discipline your own child because it looks unloving to others, would you? No, you discipline those you love. Paul is discipling his own spiritual children in the church. God disciplines his own children in the church. All because of love. It's arrogance that gets in the way of repentance and restoration. And this And this also doesn't make all of us, you know, spiritual police people cleaning up every little thing in everybody's lives. You you remember Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus tells the parable about the wheat and the tares. They're grown up together. And someone says, hey, there are tares. There are these weeds that look exactly like the wheat that are in the field. Should we go rip them out? No, Jesus says. Jesus says, leave those tares there that look like the wheat Now, the unrepentant, incestuous man is not a tear. He doesn't look like the weed at all. But those who who appear to be trying, those who appear to be kind of living within the guardrails, those who appear, even if they're just going through the motions because they're tares, not real wheat, not bearing fruit, but that's the only difference, Jesus says, leave them there. At the harvest, at the harvest, they will be bundled up and cast into the lake of fire. And the wheat will be gathered to myself. But don't you go about ripping out, ripping what look like Christians out of the church because you might get some of the Christians too. That's what Jesus says. Jesus has compassion for this situation. Jesus has compassion for your faint-heartedness in following through on church discipline. We, we know that we're, we're to exhibit forbearance and forgiveness because we have been forgiven and forbeared with. But, but not to the point where we ignore unrepentant sin. That, that goes too far. It's dangerous for the individual and for the church. And so Paul says, be who you are. Be the new lump. Be unleavened which is what Christ has made you. Because we are holy, set apart by God for God, we pursue purity every day 
it's not just sexual, sexual immorality that we must cast out, but all sins that have grown so prominent that they characterize who we are. That's what Paul's getting after. It's not an exhaustive list, but Paul adds the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, the reviler and the drunkard. There are no respectable sins. You know, sins small enough that, you know, it's okay that you keep them, that you harbor them, that you coddle them. There are no acceptable levels of sin. Well, I can engage in sexual immorality as long as it's behind closed doors and doesn't involve anyone else. There's no levels of sin that are acceptable. They're all to be cast out. It's hard work because it's good work. I think just, just with this list, just with this list, I think Paul would have us to ask, just how greedy are you anyway? <laughs> Come on, Scott, how greedy are you? How much does your love of this world and the things in this world drive your actual behavior, characterize you as a person? What are you willing to do to get what you want? Would you deceive or swindle somebody? That's a fun word, isn't it? Swindle them? Surely none of us would be called reviling. Wait, what's reviling? Let's look at reviling in this way. Would your spouse or your children or your co-workers or your social media followers say that you use angry speech or cutting words or abusive language? Have you evaluated your drinking lately? Are you motivated to drink to get a buzz? Do you know when one is one too many? Idolatry here may be a catch-all category for us. Anything that motivates us more than our obedience to Christ is an idol. It's hard work, isn't it? Casting out the old leaven from our lives. But it's good work. And it's work that's better done together in sincerity and truth. And how would you do that? Paul gives us two steps. Step one, behold Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed. The work is done. The salvation is accomplished. Step two, become who you are in Christ. Live in sincerity and truth. Be holy and beloved. It's just as simple as that. Do the hard work because it's good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing and magnificent to us to behold Jesus who became our sacrificial lamb that your just judgment on our sin and your just wrath upon our sin would pass us over and land on him on the cross, nailed there in our place, that we might be the church of God, 
holy and beloved in your sight. And it is powerful and beautiful in our sight that you have given us all that we need in Christ by the Spirit to walk out lives of true holiness. Help us, we pray, to make us want to and to do the work and to do it as our boast in the power and the love and the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.